You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. As ever, in the first verse or two of the book of Nahum, we get introduced to the author and the big theme of the book. And so if you take a look at chapter 1 and verse 1, if you don't have it in front of you, we'll have it on the screen. This is what it says, the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So we get the author, the protagonist, and the main subject of the book in that first verse. The, the author, the speaker, uh, these are the collected works of Nahum, his preaching, his poetry, and his main message in getting this book together, putting it together, um, was to sort of synthesize God's message to Nineveh, the, the, what we saw last week in the book of, uh, two weeks ago in the book of Jonah, that great, encouraging, um, spirit-led uh, repentance from the king down to the cows, right? From the highest to the lowest, that heartfelt repentance at the terrible preaching of Jonah. Um, in a kind of depressing plot twist, we see a hundred years down the track that Nineveh has repented of its repentance. They've reneged. They've gone back to their own wa- their old ways. And Nineveh now has, as one of the world's superpowers, um, has annexed both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They've gone back to their sort of bloodthirsty, conquering, um, despotic ways. And all of that is depressing, considering the heartfelt nature of their repentance. And it's worth asking the question, was that repentance just for show, just to avoid God's coming judgment, or was it genuine? We're not told explicitly. You know, Jonah kind of finishes the book and doesn't tell us anything much further, but it's clear that at least 100 years later, and so you're probably looking at five or six generations at that time later, the people have turned away from their turning away. That is, they've, they've, they've repented of their repentance and they've gone back to the old Nineveh, the Nineveh, Nineveh that was famous in the ancient world for its bloodthirstiness, for its just its sort of despotic, tyrannical conquering of every nation in its sight. And so you get a sense of the, the heart of these people in the book of Nahum. I've, I've, I've quoted it to you before, but in chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, he says this, Woe to the city of blood. You know you're doing something wrong if that's the nickname for your city. Like Chicago's the windy city. This is the city of blood. That's Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. That is, they've always got someone that they're slaughtering. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horseman, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. That's Nineveh. That's the way, that's Nahum's poetic picture of Nineveh as a city. And so they have fallen from grace. And it's just worth stopping here and noting something my my granddad actually was famous for saying was that, that God has no grandchildren. That is that every generation is responsible for hearing and responding to the gospel. And it's a good reminder for us, those of us who are parents, that we ought not, um, uh, we ought not 
be presumptuous when it comes to the state of our children's faith. Um, Yes, we raise them in a household that acknowledges the Lord. Yes, we raise them to pray and to repent and to read God's word, to go to Arrow Kids. But we ought not be presumptuous. We ought always have in mind the example of Nineveh and actually everyone who's ever lived, that each one of us is prone to wander. I mean prone to wander in our own lifetime and generationally prone to wander. And an example is the state of churches where if you look at, you know, 100 years ago, they were zealous for gospel ministry and not two, three generations later, they've totally lost all sense of gospel zeal. That happens in churches, that happens in families. And so we ought always to be mindful of that fact. And yes, evangelize your children. By all means, pray every day that they would know and love Jesus all of their days. That's what I pray for your kids if they come up for communion. They would know and love Jesus all of their days. That's a a daily prayer and a warning to us here given by the city of Nineveh itself. So this book is all about, like the big idea, the big theme, it's about God's promise to avenge his people by destroying Nineveh utterly. Which is exactly what happened. Nahum prophesied it like in quite a good amount of detail, quite a long time before it happened. He prophesied that Babylon would come in and destroy Nineveh, that that was going to be God's doing, secondary agency of Babylon initiated by God himself as an avenging judgment on them for their uh, bloodthirsty ways. And that's exactly what happened. The Medes got together with the Babylonians. They saw Nineveh as one of the most powerful cities in the world, and so they got together and conquered it, completely destroyed it forever. It never recovered. They've dug up most of it today, and the destruction was complete. But it wasn't before they themselves utterly destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, never again to rise up. So this book is written in the midst of a world where these things happen, right? Nations conquer nations. And so as you read this book and you you read some of the the language, which is really full on, like it's, 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 it's not PG, right? It's really intense. You need to see it in the context where people, whole cities and nations are being put to the sword. This is the world that Nahum lives in. And so it's the language that he employs. In the previous six um, sermons that we've done through the, the Minor Prophets, we're halfway through, the previous six I've attempted to go through the whole book and sort of reference the, the, the highlights right through every chapter. I'm not going to do that this morning. We're just going to slow down a little bit. And I want to just look at the three major themes that I think Either the three major themes of the book, or maybe, maybe more accurately, if I'm just being honest, the three things that jumped out to me that maybe we need to hear most from the book. So either way, it's coming from here and not from anywhere up here. Um, but I think I had a sense that God, that God really wants us to hear these three things this morning, that it's pertinent to us as a community. And so that's been my prayer. These three things... Three major themes 
Jealousy, control, and refuge. Jealousy, control, and refuge. So let's jump right in. We're going to start at jealousy. And and when I say jealousy, my assumption is that most of us interpret that word in a negative sense. We attach negative emotions to that word. And yet what Nahum makes clear is that when he's speaking about jealousy, he's actually speaking about an attribute of God himself, something that God experiences himself, not in the slightest bit negative, but actually born out of God's character and nature, which is perfect. And so he says in the second verse, of chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. So right off the back, the first thing actually that Nahum wants us to know is that God is jealous. I've got a quote here from J.I. Packer in his book. Go to the first one, guys. The, uh, in his book, Knowing God, which really you ought to read if you haven't yet, he says, kind of referencing this, this idea that jealousy is a negative emotion, he says, nobody would imagine a jealous God. Right? We tend to attribute things to God that we, we view as being positive. No one would imagine a jealous God, but we're not making up an idea of God by drawing on our imagination. We are seeking instead to listen to the words of Holy Scripture in which God himself tells us the truth about himself. That's what the Bible is. It's God revealing himself to us. It's revelation. And so we bring all of these ideas to Scripture whenever we come to it. And maybe we bring this idea of jealousy being a negative thing to it. But we need to understand that God sets the agenda for us. And so to the extent that we attribute negative things to him, we need to stop and reassess. It's worth noting an important distinction. I think I've spoken to this before, but the distinction between envy and jealousy There's a distinction between envy and jealousy. To be envious is to want something that belongs to someone else. It's to look over the fence and see your neighbor's new car or your neighbor's new wife or whatever it is and to to want that that doesn't belong to you. We get this from, from birth, right? If you just watch two or more kids in one room for any length of time, you see envy at play. I want what he's got. I want that which does not belong to me. Jealousy is very different, actually. Jealousy is to want that which belongs to you and to guard against somebody else taking it from you. So while you might envy your neighbor's wife, you are to be jealous for your own wife. I'm jealous for Renee's affections because I don't want her affections to go to another. They belong to me, not to anybody else. And so this is the foundation for God's jealousy of his, for his glory and for his people. God is jealous for his glory because his glory belongs to him rightly. He's not envious of some other God that gets more glory than him. He is power, majesty, glory, eternally, and so it belongs to him. He's jealous for it. He's jealous for his people because they belong to him. He is wed to them. He has made covenant with them. And so J.R. Packer goes on, in Knowing God, goes on to say, 
this. God's jealousy over his people presupposes his love. That's what's at root of his jealousy, his love. And this love is no transitory affection, accidental and aimless, but it is the expression of a sovereign purpose. He goes on, the goal of the covenant love of God is that he should have a people on earth as long as history lasts, and after that should have all his faithful ones of every age with him in glory. Covenant love is the heart of God's plan for his world, and covenant love is at the root of his jealousy. He has made covenant with the people. He has, he's, he's married to his people. He is the groom and she is the bride. And so he's jealous for his people. And he, when he sees them, you've seen this all through the minor prophets, when he sees them going after the gods of Baal, these, these gods that ha, there are no gods at all, he's jealous for them. When they prostitute themselves, he's jealous for them. This is why this very visceral language is used in the minor prophets. Because God feels it that way. The depth of his love for us fuels his jealousy for us. I think it would probably serve us well to learn the distinction and then every day to diminish envy and to increase, actually, jealousy. Increase our sense of zeal for those things which belong to us. First of all, God himself, God's kingdom, God's purposes. All of these things belong to us as co-heirs with Christ. And so we ought to feel and cultivate the same sense of zeal, the same sense of jealousy for those things. All right, that's jealousy. What about control? Nahum, Nahum talks a lot about control. He talks, actually, all of the minor prophets talk a lot about control. Probably, if you got all 12 together, I'm, I would hazard a guess that in the top three major themes would be control, and that is God's sovereign control of all things. This is a big thing on the, 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 the thematic preaching roster of the Old Testament prophets. And Nahum particularly wants, as he addresses the people of Nineveh, he wants them to know there is a power stronger than you. Right? You've got to think in the mindset of Nineveh, they are without peer. They are doing what they want whenever they want. They are putting everyone to the sword. They are the superpower of their age. They are the, the United States of America. Right? No one is messing with them and Nahum wants to be able to communicate as best and as clearly as he can that there is a power stronger than you and he will bring you down. That's his message. Remember, he's addressing the people of Nineveh and he's doing a much more... Um, well, he's just doing a flat-out better job than Jonah did. Certainly a more comprehensive job than Jonah did and a more poetic job than Jonah did. And so he puts into, onto paper this, this poetry that's meant to bring Nineveh to see that they are not the superpower of the universe that they think they are. They are not without peer. They have a creator God who is over all things and, in this case, who is against them. 
He's going to have vengeance on them. So he says in verse 3 to 5 of chapter 1, just listen to this. This is really important for us to hear. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up, and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt, the earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it, even Nineveh, needs to know that Yahweh reigns. Now here's the thing about, and I think if, you, if we had a time machine we could prove this. And I think if you read history you see this. But whenever any civilization gets powerful and prosperous, it's dangerous. Whenever any civilization gets powerful and prosperous, they're in danger of thinking that they're in control. This illusion is formed in the collective consciousness of any civilization that is powerful and prosperous. The illusion that they actually control anything. And if that's true, and it is, and if it was true for Nineveh, then it's true for us as well. We live in the most powerful and prosperous civilization that's ever lived. Like, Nineveh has nothing compared to what we have. And so if it was a danger for them and a danger that they fell into, then it is one for us, and we're probably not aware of it. Like, this just is that the fish doesn't realise it's living in water, right? We don't realise that we're living in this context in which we, we participate like little children in the illusion that we have any control over anything. And it's reinforced a million times over, right? We lack for nothing, really. Nothing that we need... And our appetite for those things which we don't need is insatiable. Now, my from from a, from the from layman's land, right, with no psychological qualifications at all. My diagnosis of the epidemic, which is anxiety and worry, in our context, in our affluent prosperous, powerful Western civilization. At least a big part of it, I believe, comes down to this. Our anxiety comes because we believe the illusion that we have control and then the gap that exists between the illusion and reality is anxiety. Produces anxiety. Because whenever I come up against the fact that I don't have control over this or that situation, it causes me anxiety because it destroys the myth that I have control over this situation, right? 
Is this making sense? Anxiety is the ought. I ought to have control here and I don't. Blood pressure rises. So I think one, at least one, of the ways that we can combat worry and anxiety is to stop participating in the illusion. To stop playing that game. To actually say to yourself every day, and you need to combat 10 zillion messages that are coming from outside of you if you're going to do this successfully, but you can combat that. You can combat it by every day acknowledging, I am not the Lord. I am not in control. You say that out loud, I'm not in control, and everyone here thinks you're saying something negative. No, you're saying something true. And truth is better than fiction. The truth is that none of us is in control. Jesus said, which of you by worrying can add a single day to your life? That's a good question. He goes on to say, listen, all of the hairs of your head are numbered. Like you can stress and worry about not knowing how many hairs you have on your head from second to second. Well, I worked it out yesterday, but now I've lost some and then I gained some. And then, like, that's a parable of the worry that we experience in this life. I need to have, I need to have control over the amount of hairs on my head or the amount of days that I have ahead of me. And Jesus says, you don't know and you can't add to it, so don't worry. He says, not a sparrow falls from a tree apart from God's will. How much more valuable are you than many sparrows? So if you're struggling to any degree with anxiety, and you are, then yes, get more exercise. Do some mindfulness exercises each day. Um, Get sunshine. Improve your diet. Do all of those things, but for God's sake, do this. A daily acknowledgement that I am not in control, and that's good. I think it's probably why Jesus structured the Lord's Prayer as he did. He said, whenever you pray, and he assumed that would be every day and multiple times during the day, he said, pray like this. I'm going to ask you to pray this with me, all right? We've got the liturgical version that we can all say together. As our Saviour Christ has taught us, we are confident to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Every word of that reinforces the truth that I'm trying to get into our heads this morning. My head first, then yours, God willing. Every word of it. A great exercise is to take that as the template that Jesus intended it to be and just fill it out. Add some of your own worries in there. 
and ask God to again be the provider. It is a great thing, a godly thing, a healthy thing to say, I am not in control. But God is. And the best news for us is not just, as Nahum has said, that God is in control, that he's sovereign, right? That he's powerful, that he's bigger than the Ninevites. But that he's all of those things and he's good. If he's just powerful, he might be a dictator who tortures us. But he's powerful and he's good. He is love. So we can confidently pray as Jesus taught us to. Jealousy, control, last thing, refuge. You get this contrast throughout all of the, the minor prophets. Actually, just all the prophets. Minor, minor major, <laughs> all those prophets. And, and in Nahum, you get this, this contrast. And it's not, it's not a contradiction, it's just a contrast between God's ferocity in power and his... And his uh, and his security in refuge. Ferocity in power and, and security in refuge. Something like that. You get that, this, this coming together of those two things in God himself and in the way that he functions in the world. And so I want us to, to hear that this morning. To know that God is a refuge for those in distress. He always has been. He always will be. And yes, we can talk about ways and means of maybe dealing with some of the anxiety that's so prevalent in our society today, but ultimately all of that comes under this banner. God is my refuge. He's a safe place. We can talk about these sort of politically driven things going on in universities and so on, safe places where no one can say a bad word about you, that's, I mean, whatever. But the only safe place, you need to know, the only safe place is in God himself. God is a refuge for those in distress. Verse 7 of chapter 1, this is what Nahum says, in the midst of this whole big tirade, this whole poetic effusion about God's power, he says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. So it's worth asking ourselves this morning, what, what are our refuges? All of us have refuges. Whenever we feel distressed, whenever we feel overwhelmed, whenever we feel taxed or grieved, depressed, we have these refuges that we run to. But some of us, and this is the tragedy, some of us have built up these, these paper mache refuges, these pathetic twigs, little structures that we run to and try and hide in, and time after time, our worries and our stresses just crush them and us along with them. 
And so everyone's got these, right? This is, I'm not just talking about that guy, right? Everyone, everyone's got these refuges. They can be refuges that we, we, we assume to be negative in the first place. That is drugs, alcohol, you know, all the bad things that we run to to find some relief, to find some escape, video games, I don't know, whatever, spending money, retail therapy is a massive hoax, refuge that we run to. But then there are other things that we assume are good that are, that are just as useless as those things as refuges, like our husband or our wife, our children, God forbid. We have these refuges that we run to. Oh, eating, eating, fast food, like heaps, you know, just, you name it. Anything can become a false refuge, actually. We need to be mindful of that. We need to, to, to own that. When we confess our sins to God, we need to say, I prefer to drink six beers than to run to you for refuge. We need to say that if it's true. That's what confession is. And then we need to ask God, please redirect my desires to want real refuge rather than these this paper and twigs. I'll just make a promise to you that those things will always fail you. Always. And I'm, I don't just mean the six beers, I mean your husband, your wife, your children. They always fail you. You're asking them to do something they are not designed to do. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. I really want us to get our heads around this because we, we have this as, a, as an espoused value of our church. We have have said this is part of our identity as a church. If you look online and you you go to About about Us or something on our website and you read about our name, you'll see this. So I've I've just cut and pasted some stuff from our website. This is what describing the the name of our church. Lest you think it's because we've got a red door. Beginning with the blood-painted doors of the Passover in Exodus 12 and fulfilled in Jesus, our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, the red door has long been a symbol of redemption, refuge, and hope. In fact, going back to the cathedral architecture in the Middle Ages, the color red, signifying the blood of Christ, was painted on the doors of the church or the cathedral or the abbey, marking the building as a sanctuary, a refuge, and safety zone from physical or spiritual dangers. Being Red Door Church provides us with a regular reminder of God's love and mercy and awakens us to our common status as one-time slaves who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redemption, refuge, rescue, all the re's, right? All these things, this is, this is who we are. And so I want us to think to think about what does that mean? What can we do to become who we are? I'm saying that's who we are. What can we do to become who we are? How can we be more of a refuge for people who are in distress? Ultimately, it's about letting them know that 
We just point to God, who himself is their refuge. But how do we gather people in to the refuge of God? Jealousy, control, refuge. When you combine those three things into one God, when those three things go into who he is, to his nature, to his attributes, then you have a God that you can worship. Then you have a God that you can trust. A God who has made covenant with you and actually keeps his promises, guards them jealously. A God who doesn't flitter from wife to wife, but has made covenant with you and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. A God who's jealous for you. And who's not just jealous for you, but can't, can't really achieve what he would like to do, which is to keep you close to him. No, a God who's jealous for you and has the power over all things, all places, times, peoples, governments, powers over all these things to protect his people, to guard them and to keep them. The fact that he's jealous, that he's in control and that he is a refuge, a comfort, a a warm, snuggling, fatherly embrace for those who trust in him. All those things come together and you have a God who is worthy of our worship. And so just to finish now, I, just, I, I want to read to you, uh, just rather than praying, praying for you extemporaneously, I, I'm just going to read from an old book. It's got old language just forgive, forgive the language. Um, it's, a, it's a book so worth your investment. It's called The Valley of Vision, and it's, it's just a collection of prayers written by Puritans and those who have come after the Puritans. And um, So if you, if you want to bow your heads and, and close your eyes, I'm going to just read this prayer. It's titled Need of Jesus. And I, just, I pray that it's something that we can... Agree to collectively. Lord Jesus, I am blind. Be thou my light. Ignorant, be thou my wisdom. Self willed, be thou my mind. Open my ear to grasp quickly thy spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt my conscience that no hardness remain. Make it alive to evil's slightest touch. When Satan approaches, may I flee to thy wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Be my good shepherd to lead me into the green pastures of thy word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts. Fill me with peace that no disquieting worldly gales may ruffle the calm surface of my soul.
Thy cross was upraised to be my refuge. Thy blood streamed forth to wash me clean. Thy death occurred to give me a surety. Thy name is my property to save me. By thee all heaven is poured into my heart, but it is too narrow to comprehend thy love. I was a stranger, an outcast, a slave, a rebel, but thy cross has brought me near, has softened my heart, has made me thy father's child, has admitted me to thy family, has made me joint heir with thyself. Oh, that I may love thee as thou lovest me, that I may walk worthy of thee, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see thy beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of thy spirit in my heart, for unless he move mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled.